Hello, this is Eyes for Ears with your hosts Ben Young and Andrew Powell. This week, we're diverting from our usual test and board preparation to discuss a challenge that still faces the field of ophthalmology in 2021, and that's the challenge of representation. To lead us into it with a little bit of context, there's about 30% of the U.S. population that's comprised of minority groups that are underrepresented in medicine. And this is formally defined as individuals of Native American and First Nations, Black, Pacific Islander, and Latinx descent. Even though they comprise 30% of the population in this country, they only comprise about 6 to 8% of ophthalmologists. So in simple terms, we only have about 50% of the proportion of those who are underrepresented in medicine graduating from medical schools who are entering ophthalmology. It isn't getting any better. From 2005 to 2014, there's been no change in this proportion per a study by Sorali and all in 2016 in GEM ophthalmology. Troublingly, not a single First Nations or Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander student even applied to ophthalmology according to the statistics we have available from 2016 to 2019. According to a 2021 publication by Libby Fairless and Chris Pertang in ophthalmology, ophthalmology has the third lowest proportion of underrepresented minority faculty out of all clinical departments. So to help address this issue, the AAO and Association of University Professors of Ophthalmology, also called AUPO, started the Minority Ophthalmology Mentorship Program. So we'd like to bring on two very special guests who are both members of the MOM Executive Committee, and leaders in ophthalmology in their own right, of course, to such an extent that to list all of their accomplishments individually would probably take an entire episode. But we'll go with the summary, at least, and have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Keith Carter, the past president of both the American Academy of Ophthalmology and AUPO, current chair at the University of Iowa, and chair of the MOM Executive Committee. Thank you for being here, Dr. Carter. Thank you. And I'd like to introduce Dr. Paul Lee, who's president-elect of AUPO, the research liaison for MOM, the president of the NAEVR slash AEVR, and chair of the Kellogg Eye Center at the University of Michigan. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Lee. It's great to be with you. So this is a challenging topic to talk about, and we figured we would kind of introduce a couple of questions before talking a little bit about the Minority Ophthalmology Mentorship Program. So to start off with, what is the value of diversity in medicine and ophthalmology? I think first is there's a lot of good empirical work, for example, done by Scott Page here at the University of Michigan, which shows that diverse teams outperform individuals or more homogenous teams. So there's a practical advantage to this. There's also the promise that we have in this country of equal opportunity for everyone. And so it's it's part of who we are as a country and a society that we want to provide opportunities for people to pursue their dreams and what they want to be able to accomplish. And putting these two together will be a much better off society if we're able to accomplish these goals. I find it really interesting the point you bring up too, especially with the published data that diverse teams that reflect the populations they treat actually outperform those who are less diverse. Have any of us here seen that firsthand necessarily? Uh, Yes, I can. uh, I've seen it. I've experienced it. And it's not to say that you have to match up your patient with the doctor. 
What it says is, though, there's a comfort level when patients see someone that looks like them in the team, healthcare team. It could be the nurse, it could be the assistant, it could be the doctor themselves. It's just a comfort level. The smile I see on the face of an African-American patient is because I look like them. And the questions they ask me after I examine them are all about how did I get to Iowa? And so it's that sort of common theme that allows them to have a certain comfort level with me. Now, it doesn't mean my, my white counterparts seeing the patients, they, they can't take care of them just as well. But sometimes if you don't see anybody in your clinic looking like you, it's just, it's just a little uncomfortable. Right. And I do feel like it's living in the time we do right now where it's difficult to even just be on the same page as far as the facts go. Of course, what Dr. Lee mentioned about the facts that it, these things do go a little better when people have see themselves reflected in their provider. At the same time, it sounds like, I think from one study that I read, in a survey of physicians asking them if they can recall times where they've identified this difference in care before, only about 29% of them actually acknowledged that they felt the healthcare system did have these inequities in care. So it does seem very much so that not only is the base, are the very basic facts challenging, but just people's understanding or even awareness of them. Yeah, the, just to uh, comment on that, it w that number doesn't surprise me because I think most of us are concentrating on taking care of people. And we're not, really not paying attention to the surroundings. Uh, if you're not part of that group, then again, it's harder for you to see it because most things are just normal. It's your normal day versus it's not the normal day for the person being taken care of. I think it's manifesting itself right now in the COVID situation when we look at groups of people who are most affected but are hesitant to take the vaccine. And that's because we don't have the best history in medical care of some of these underrepresented groups. They don't trust the system. So I think we need to, to use all the people we have that look more like them to help convince them that this is a good thing to do. And that's to take the vaccine. That is such an important point, Dr. Carter, because the foundation of our doctor-patient relationship is really trust. And we have had numerous examples in this country where people who come from the African-American community and other communities have had their trust abused by physicians on a, on a regular basis by researchers. So everyone knows about the Tuskegee experiment with syphilis and very few people may know that it was only in the 1920s that the American Medical Association dropped its ban on African-American physicians from being members in the AMA. So there's a history of structural impediments and obstacles and flat-out racism that exists within our profession as a whole. And I think if we look at the trust factor, let's start there. Patients will adhere and do better to our recommendations if there's trust. Part of this is also will improve the outcomes by understanding the life experiences of patients who come from different backgrounds. The burden that people carry from having to deal with slights and acts that indicate racism are much larger for people who look different. And so it makes it harder for them to navigate the system. 
And even in ophthalmology, one of our great faculty members here, Dr. Angela Elam, published a paper showing that corrected for insurance status and health status, that African-Americans, Blacks, have a different rate of diagnostic testing for glaucoma than people who are white. Now, it's a claims-based study, so we can't investigate why that's the case, but it's certainly indicative that even within ophthalmology, there are differences by race in the treatments that people receive, and so therefore, it's really important for us to begin to understand the factors. In cardiology, there's several well-known studies, including one out of Duke, which showed that when they showed cardiologists back in the 2000s, a patient who presented with exactly the same symptoms on video, except in one case it was black and another case it was white, the doctors, the cardiologists, gave very different recommendations for their care. And so this is hard empirical evidence that suggests that while we all think that we care for patients equally, that we need to understand that that may not always be the case and for us to better understand why that occurs. With such obvious data in front of us, I wonder if that has led to interesting or particularly difficult conversations about this topic amongst yourself and your faculty colleagues. I ask this kind of because I remember seeing on our glaucoma listservs, mostly the daily conversations about how am I going to best treat this patient, actually take a turn into speaking about more social justice issues when the Black Lives Matter protests first began. And that seemed to be the first time I'd really actually seen a group of physicians start discussing this out in the open, so to speak. And I just wonder if you, over the last few years, have also seen an increased amount of conversation about this amongst your faculty colleagues. I wonder how those conversations might usually have gone or if there are ways that you might give advice to us about how we can even have those conversations with other people. Well, I think this summer, the events of this summer really opened up the doors and let people have more freedom to talk about race relations. And I think it hit the conscience of the majority population when they witnessed a person lose their life at the hands of the police, uh, when they couldn't really justify what criminal act this person was doing. It wasn't the first time a person of color was either shot or harmed, but most of the time those videos depict a person running or they can associate a crime, and people just said, oh, that's law enforcement doing their job. This summer, that video of the man losing his life because someone had their knee on his neck touched the heart of a lot of people. And I think it opened up the uh, pathway to have meaningful discussions about race. And I think that's why you saw the change in your listserv. And I think that's why we had different seminars and, and, and chat room talk discussion about race. And so I think for us that we have had conversations and now the onus is on those of us who have the privilege of leadership to actually help take action to make things better. And so in order to do that, we have to commit to action and then do it. And so what are some of the steps that we can take? One is to have these sorts of conversations, 
two is to talk about how all of us are unified in the pursuit of providing eye care and health care to improve the visual health and health status of all Americans, and that our goal is to make what we do available to all Americans, everyone who lives here, in a way that they can find it useful for their lives. And I think there's, there's probably absolutely no one in our field who disagrees with that statement. And that's why we're all doctors. And so if we start with that, then we can work together to make things better. And so what can we do within our own practices? We can see if there are policies or hiring practices that make it harder for people of different backgrounds to be successful. We can see if we have an office practice that discourages patients who come from different backgrounds from being a patient. There are a number of things that we can each do within our daily work to try to make things better for our patients and for making our practices more attractive for staff and teammates who come from different backgrounds. And that's particularly important because the Census Bureau data clearly indicates that by 2050, if not sooner, the majority of people in this country will be non-white. And so that is already occurring in California. And so it is something that for us to be successful in what we do, we need to have teammates from all different backgrounds to help us do and achieve our goal. So we happen to have two heads of departments that have top 10 ophthalmology residency programs. So I think, you know, your excellent point, Dr. Lee, leads into the question of what factors should go into resident selection that'll enable this, you know, hopefully more diverse future that for, for all the reasons that we just talked about. You know, what can you or what can uh, anyone in a leadership, academic leadership position around the country do to help make our residencies more diverse? I, I think first, I think you need to engage the faculty and the team that's doing your selection of residents. And I think what you have to do is have open conversation about selection bias. I think you have to have a conversation about being more inclusive and maybe dropping some of the traditional barriers that we choose to select our medical students for res uh, for interviews. We typically used to use uh, step one scores as a screen. I t totally understand why we did that. When you have 600 plus applicants, that's a lot of applicants. You have to use some criteria to uh, cut that number down. But I think if you start looking at applications in a more holistic way, that's the terminology being used, meaning you're doing a better study of their personal statements, you're doing a better study of activities that these students have done beyond their test scores, and just make a concerted effort to look at people that are not the majority. You will find that there's qualified applicants out there if you uh, give them a chance. And if if you really look at it, you can fill up all our residency slots with any, with the majority population if that's what you want to do. That's, that's definitely possible. But I don't think that's good for our future of our specialty. And I don't think it's good for if our goal is to provide the best possible eye care to all America. 
completely agree with Dr. Carter. And so moving away from the quantitative board scores, and in fact, as many of our listeners know, the part one national boards are going to pass fail. And so that's pretty much going to take away the quantitative threshold. And so looking at everyone's background more fully is really important. And we're fortunate here at Michigan that our faculty have had a tradition from the very beginning that it's a whole portfolio holistic review done by at least two, often three members of the selection committee. And so some of our very best residents in terms of accomplishment and achievement have had board scores well below the cutoff used by many other programs. And so we've been very pleased with that. Part of this is looking for people who have had life experiences where they've overcome important and significant obstacles, and because that shows a characteristic a lot of people refer to as grit. And so that's one of the key things that we look at for all of our hiring. We also have identified five guiding principles that we use for our, all of our operations here at Kellogg. And so we actually put that up front and center for all of the residents and fellows and faculty that we're trying to recruit. And so inclusivity is explicitly one of those guiding principles, as well as teamwork. And then some of the structural things that we do is that, as with all of the other committees here at the University of Michigan, and I'm sure at Iowa as well, is you cannot be on a selection committee or a recruitment committee without formal unconscious bias training. And so part of that training indicates that when we invite people for interviews, that we don't have just one person of a of a identifiable characteristic in the pool because they sort of stick out. So having more people with a similar background in the same session means that it's not it doesn't call out that it's different. It's just accepted. And so these are some of the practical tips that we've learned through unconscious bias training that we apply in our interviewing technique. What other barriers do you see outside of, you know, these quantitative scores for underrepresented minorities that are looking to apply into ophthalmology? So a lot of the folks who come from different backgrounds also have a different kind of looking portfolio. So one of the risks is that being humans, we all like to get people like ourselves. And so being consciously thinking about looking at people with different backgrounds will help. And so, for example, people who come from different backgrounds, especially underrepresented in medicine backgrounds, may not have the same exposure in their education to research. And so if we're at a high-end program looking for people who are going to be clinician scientists or academicians, and research is an important factor, if we overweight the number of papers, like if someone does a paper or two, is that really any less than somebody who does 20 papers? And yet a lot of committees will will veer towards, oh, this paper person has 20 papers. And so understanding the challenges that each person has and what it represents in terms of their ability to succeed in the face of adversity is really a key characteristic. Keith, anything to add? Oh, uh, I would say I agree with Dr. Lee here, but the other thing that's important is to help people in their path to ophthalmology or to any medical stuff, especially is mentorship. Some of these students need to have advice along the way. 
because it's a new, a totally new path. I mean, you take ophthalmology. Ophthalmology is usually presented as a very competitive subspecialty. And so a lot of underrepresented kids don't think about applying because they think they can't get in. But with mentors, mentors can help them understand what they have to do to get in if that's what they want to do. But more importantly, we just had to expose these uh, students to the field. Primary care is, is, is emphasized so much in our medical schools today that a lot of students never rotate through ophthalmology, even know what ophthal- uh, ophthalmology does. They know about optometry, but they don't know about ophthalmology. And in many ways, the fact that we don't have a lot of uh, underrepresented medicine ophthalmologists makes it harder for the students of those backgrounds to have someone that they can find out what it's about. And we all think it's by far the best specialty in all of medicine. Objectively. (laughs) Yes. And so therefore, if we get people exposed to it, people will want to pursue it because they're fascinated by what we are able to do. And the other piece is we have some colleagues who are leaders in our field who've shared stories saying that when they were students, they were actively discouraged by their advisory deans for pursuing ophthalmology and that they were told that they should do primary care because that was important for their communities and for all of our communities. And so that's something that we sometimes have to actively overcome. So the points that both Dr. Carter and Dr. Lee bring up about the challenges, the specific and unique challenges that underrepresented minorities in medicine can face, seems a lot like that's, those are the reasons why the Minority Ophthalmology Mentorship Program was created, which I understand it's a relatively new program, just a few years old, is that right at this point? Correct. I think uh, my notes say 2017 officially. <laughs> Congratulations, I'm sure many of the inaugural class students are doing well so far. But would either you, Dr. Carter or Dr. Liebind, telling us and our general audience a little bit more about what the program is? Well, I would say that um, Dr. Lee and I have been at this from the beginning. And I think it was an acknowledgement of the AUPO and the AAO to do something to try to improve our situation uh, as far as diversity in ophthalmology. And you probably ask, well, why did it take two organizations? Well, the American Academy of Ophthalmology is the largest organization of practicing ophthalmologists in the country. And AUPO represents the academic arm of ophthalmology. So without both of them, we weren't going to have much say in recruiting students in ophthalmology. So they teamed up and started the MOM program after a uh, year of a pilot program. And what we wanted to do was to, one, represent and, and uh, represent ophthalmology to underrepresented students to get them interested in ophthalmology. We geared this to first and second year medical students and sometimes undergraduate students. Once we get them interested in ophthalmology, then we assign them mentors to help them through their first and second year as far as things they need to do to have a competitive application. We now have assigned students different mentors because different mentors can help you with different things. Uh, some mentors are not very connected to research, so we try to get them research mentors. And others help them in life skill type issues. Uh, also, the uh, MOB program has interviewing training 
techniques and interview and training and public speaking. We also give them uh, access to all the academy educational materials, and we give them step one uh, online training to try to improve those scores that were used uh, for screening. Now, as Dr. Lee alluded to earlier, step one's going to pass fail, so we'll save a little money there. And <laughs> we won't have to give those classes. So that's, that's where it started. Uh, our first year, we were fortunate enough to uh, support 25 uh, students in the program. Uh, this past year, we were up to 50. And we have funding now to go up to 100. I think 100 is going to be a stretch, but that's our goal for 2021. And uh, if I could uh, jump in here, Dr. Carter is, as usual, much too modest because he has been a driving force for, for the Minority Ophthalmology Mentoring Program from the very beginning. And he's been involved in so many different ways. And I'd also think it, it's appropriate to also mention a few other people that have been really at the very start of the MOM program. And those include uh, Dr. Susan Forster at Yale, uh, Dr. Lynn Gordon at UCLA, and also, doc in particular, Dr. Mildred Olivier and Dr. Edie Miller, who have also been running the RAB Venable program of the National Medical Association to prepare students who come from underrepresented minority backgrounds to be successfully and to be competitive successfully for ophthalmology residency programs. And so I think it's a great confluence and the creation of an ecosystem to help support people to be competitive for what we think, again, is the best specialty there is and, and frankly, one of the most competitive specialties in all of medicine. I always suspect Dr. Carter of underselling his accomplishments a little bit, so thank you, Dr. Lee, for setting the record straight. <laughs> well, I would just say that a lot of my accomplishments were with uh, the assistance of a lot of my colleagues, including Dr. Lee and, and the people he named. The uh, I could just say that the RAP Venable program has been in existence for many more years before mom, and we have a lot of uh, uh, alums that have gotten into ophthalmology, and it was through that program. So we owe a lot to that program. And we really patterned the mom program off of some of their successes. So it's, it's been a group effort. So we've mentioned that mom has been going on for a few years now. How do you, either of you feel that it's been going so far? Well, I think it's way too early to try to grade success of the program. I would say it's, it's been successful in my eyes because of the number of applicants we've had for the program. Last year, I think we were just under 100 applicants for the program. So that right there, showing that much interest in it, to me, is a success. The ultimate success, of course, is matching these students in ophthalmology programs. And it will take years before we know how well we've done. And I will say that people who are supporting this now starting to understand that it will take years, and this is just not a five-year program, because in five years, you're not going to move the needle in the challenge that we have in trying to increase the number of students in ophthalmology. So short-term, I'm happy with the number of students that are applying. Long-term, that answer is still out there. And I, I am so grateful for your leadership on this, Dr. Carter. And the fact that this is a long-term commitment is really central to this, because let's look at diversity in a slightly larger context, including women. 
because women have historically been underrepresented in ophthalmology. And so for many years, we've been making steady progress such that it peaked around 44, 45% of residents were women. Now, the last few years, that slid back to closer to 40%. And so there's ongoing discussion and work on how we can do that in terms of improving it because half of the entering medical school classes for the last few years have been women. Mm. And so now the graduating classes are going to be slightly more than half women. And so again, we don't have half of our incoming residents being women. And so that, again, is an opportunity for us to reflect the greater diversity within our medical school classes and ultimately will improve our profession. Thank you both for those very insightful answers, and we look forward to hearing more about the future success of the MOM program for sure. Since Ben and I are very lucky to enjoy a pretty diverse audience for this podcast, including many medical students, and who knows, maybe even a stray undergrad or two, might you have any words of advice for one person out there who might be suddenly more interested and in wanting to reach out and look into the MOM program? Uh, if they go to the uh, Academy website, aao.org slash minority, you'll see all the uh, resources available to you and how to apply for the program. And again, I think I heard you mention it's uh, open to almost pretty wide diverse pretty wide open it, it, the graduates uh, as well I the think. students uh, we're looking for are listed there so uh, we have some undergrads senior undergrads uh, it was targeted toward first and second year students so they could prepare for the early match in ophthalmology is there anything that you know those of us who you know are not medical students anymore is there anything we can do to help if we are you know have become inspired by by this discussion I'm glad you asked that question. Uh. So, uh, sure. I mean, you can uh, be champions at your institutions. Uh, those champions give presentations to medical students about ophthalmology, trying to tell, show them how wonderful our uh, specialty is. Uh, we have, you could be a mentor. Uh, mentors come in all ages and, and all experiences. So it depends on uh, how you want to get involved. There's definitely opportunities for you to get involved. You can contact Anybody that's on the executive committee or you can contact the staff at the uh, academy and they're listed on the website also. And the, so many times the students really gravitate towards the residents and the fellows. Close, close life experiences in terms of age and, and experiences in the popular culture. And so Dr. Eric Kaplan, our medical student education director here, has started a program uh, with a medical student where she linked residents with interested students. And so that's been something that's been very positive for keeping students who are initially interested engaged and actually applying for programs. There are wonderful organizations within ophthalmology that provide resources and support. And so one in particular is the National Medical Association Ophthalmology Section that has, uh, that meets as part of the National Medical Association meeting. As we talked about, the NMA was started by black physicians who were barred from membership in the AMA. And so it's now a wonderful meeting. Dr. Carr and I go to that meeting and 
we, we learn a lot. It's an opportunity for us to engage with, with students, residents, fellows, and especially colleagues who can do a lot of amazing things. So you know, one thing programs who say, well, I'd like to get engaged, but we don't have any faculty who come from diverse backgrounds. Well, we mostly, many of us have the opportunity to work in geographic areas where there are really wonderful community ophthalmologists who come from different backgrounds. And so reaching out and engaging them and having them help with some of the educational efforts might be something that people may want to consider as a way of broadening the workforce. And the simile, the Women in Ophthalmology organization at annual meeting is just an amazingly effective meeting. I've been on record as saying it has unique characteristics and unique educational programming that in many respects makes it the best meeting of the year in our field. Well, Dr. Carter and Dr. Lee, thank you both very much for your all your eloquence and your leadership in creating the Minority Ophthalmology Mentorship Program as well as just leading our field of ophthalmology towards a better future. Really grateful that you both were able to stop in your busy days to spend a little time with Ben, myself, and our, our audience. Well, I want to thank you for the inv inv invitation to participate in this. And I want to congratulate you on having this discussion on a very important topic that I think things will make, make it better for all our patients. And thank you for providing this forum for for us to discuss such an impactful topic. And it really is great to be with both of you today and your audience, so thank you for that. Thank you, guys. So the deadline to apply for the early decision application for the MOM program is April 12th, 2021 for this cycle. A link to the online application will be included in the episode description. So if you're a resident and you know a medical student or even an undergrad that you think would really benefit from this program, please encourage them to apply. We'd like to give another big thank you to the MOM Executive Committee for making a program like this possible, as well, of course, to its parent organizations, the AAO and AUPO. Thank you to Dr. Chris Tang at Yale, who suggested this episode and interview to Andrew and I. We'd also like to thank the donors who made the MOM program possible. And that's including Alcon, Genentech, Mellencroft Pharmaceuticals, the Academy Leadership Development Programs Class of 2019, the ABO, AGS, the AGS Foundation, AOS, ASKERS, ASOPERS, International Society of Refractive Surgery, the NMA's Ophthalmology Section, NANOS, the Outpatient Ophthalmic Surgery Society, Rena Society, Vet Buckle Society, Women in Ophthalmology, APOS, American Society of Retina Specialists, AUS, and the Corny Society. There are also a number of individual donors that you can see on the AAO website who helped support the MOM program. We hope that you, the listener, can also support the MOM program's mission, if not through financial donations, then through teaching, leadership, mentorship, and in keeping some of the topics that are brought up in this episode in mind. Thanks again for your time, and we hope to see you next week.